Greetings this morning. I'm going to welcome Pastor Charles, who has a word he wants to share this morning. So let's welcome him. Thank you, Mike. Wonderful worship, as always. Just powerful, anointed. Feels great, isn't it? Welcome to the river. My name is Charles. I'm the lead pastor here, and I just am so happy you're here. We can worship God together. It's a beautiful day. So we've been in a sermon series called Impossible Questions, Fresh Perspective. And we've tackled some very difficult questions like, uh, why does the list of sin keep changing? You know what I mean? Or is the Bible inerrant? And if not, why follow it? And today, we follow it up with another juicy question, and that is, is it true that only Christians get to go to heaven? Is it true only Christians go to heaven? That's a, a question that I think most of us have wondered about at one point or another, right? Uh, recently, someone told me that as a little girl, she really wrestled with this question. Uh, she was really worried, like up at night, worrying about her uncle because she was told that only Christians go to heaven. And when you're a little girl, you know, you trust what you've been told, right? Like Santa is real. And so she was really worried about her uncle because she loved him and he wasn't a Christian. It's a poor girl, right? She's like wrecked, like having nightmares about her beloved uncle going to hell. And she was just really worried. And so, ah, uh, you know, we Christians, we can get into a, a real angsty place, right? You can get really weird around the topic of salvation, around heaven, hell, evangelism, right? For example, who here likes evangelism? Anybody? One person out of 100 people. <laughs> I mean, it's a very awkward thing, right? Evangelism is awkward. Don't you find it? Like, nobody likes it. Nobody likes it. People who are doing it, people who it's being done to, it's a very awkward thing, like root canal, right? <laughs> it's like, you know, do I have to? I mean, when you think about coworkers in your secular workplace, say you're working at Goldman Sachs or something, I, I mean, evangelism, I, oh, it could end your career. I mean, it's a very awkward thing, right? But on the other hand, churches tell you that people are going to hell if you don't do evangelism. And if you loved people, if you had any decency in your heart, you would, you would do it. Because, I mean, how can you let your beloved friends and family just go to hell and just never mind, right? So what a bind. What a wreck. You don't want to do it. It feels like root canal. But then, you know, you get all this guilt and shame at churches. Now, for the record, you will never get pressure tactics like that here. 
We promise. Because we don't think things like guilt and shame and pressure go with love. And God is love. Right? So we are not going to do stuff like that. So uh, the question remains, is it true? Is it true that only Christians go to heaven? Let me go over different views today, especially covering two largest groups of Christians today, Catholics and Protestants, which include evangelicals. Let me give you a, a little overview. The Catholic view of salvation, or who goes to heaven, church sacraments are key, especially baptism and communion. Right? Those of you who have Catholic background, yes, I see a lot of knowledge, yes. They point to several passages in the Bible for support, such as when Jesus said, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood to enter the kingdom of heaven. And in Catholic theology, when communion is administered by ordained priest, the wine literally becomes the blood of Christ. And the bread of Eucharist literally turns into the flesh of Christ at that moment. So when you take communion, you are actually eating the flesh of Christ, drinking blood of Christ, and that's your ticket to heaven. Right? That's the only way. And you can only get communion if you are baptized and in good standing with the Catholic Church. So if you are in what they consider serious sin, like divorce and remarriage, you can't receive communion, even today. And that's become a serious practical problem for the Catholic Church because in the West, half the people are divorced. And so, don't you think it's pretty harsh to condemn half the people to hell with no possibility of redemption? That's a serious problem. So it's, ugh. So, of course, not every Christian agrees. Protestants, including evangelicals, disagree strongly, going so far as to claim that Catholics are not Christian. For a very long time, they've done that. I, I remember when people would say, I'm not Catholic, I'm Christian. As if, <laughs> as if Catholics are not following Jesus. I mean, what is going on there, right? I remember that, but there was a lot of hostility between the two groups historically. For example, as recently as just a few decades ago, Billy Graham, the most revered figure in the evangelical world, he said in 1948, the three greatest menaces faced by Christianity are communism, Roman Catholicism, and Islam. Wow, right? Them strong words as the music comes along, right? That's, you know, right? There's a lot of enmity there. Can you feel that? So what do evangelicals say? They point to what you believe as facts about Jesus, about God and sin and the cross, rather than the sacraments as key to salvation. So have you heard of uh, four spiritual laws? I'm sure many of you have heard of it. 
it says that you have to believe that you are a sinner destined for hell. But Jesus died on the cross in your place, taking on punishment for that sin. And so you accept Jesus as Lord and Savior into your life. And many variants say you have to remember exactly when you did that. Um, and resolve to follow the rules of the Bible. Four spiritual laws. That's what gets you salvation. How many of you are familiar with that? Right? I, I mean, we've heard of this. This is how evangelicals believe heaven or salvation happens. The problem with this line of thinking practically is that in practice it becomes salvation by geography. You know, if you tell me where you were born, say you were born in Alabama, you are very likely to believe in these things. But if you were born in Saudi Arabia, there is a very small chance, snowball's chance in hell, some might say, <laughs> that you are going to believe these things. Because you're literally going to get killed or something. <laughs> you won't last. So are we to believe that God decides people's eternal destiny on the accident of where you were born? Or when you were born? Because if you were born in 15th century in China, you, you never even heard of these things. How are we to make sense of these things? It's confusing. Especially since there are such vehement disagreements, even among the Christians, let alone with other religions. I mean, the Catholics number 1.2 billion people, Protestants number about 1 billion people, big groups of people disagreeing vehemently. Who are we to trust? Who are we to believe? And there are 12,000 denominations in this country alone, all with slightly different views on salvation. And this dispute and disagreement just goes on endlessly. Because all these differing views on salvation are constructed theories. You can poke holes in everybody's argument. You know, you can't find a passage where Jesus says in the Bible, you know, one day my followers are going to have this thing called church. And there's going to be these ordained priests. And only unmarried men can be priests and dispense sacraments. And they will wave their hands over wine and bread. And they will literally become my body and flesh. And only by taking this, you will become a Christian and get to go to heaven. You cannot find such a passage. These are all constructed theories, taking several passages, patching them together, with questionable interpretations on all sides. And that's why everybody just fights with everybody, saying this is a problem, that's a problem. The thing is, though, Jesus was asked straight out, how does salvation happen? How do you get to heaven? He was asked. Now, Jesus mentions eternal life or kingdom of God, about a dozen times in the Bible. And that's where all these constructive theories come from. But they all happen, most of them happen, in the context of a larger teaching. You make different points, larger points. As far as I can tell, there were only two times Jesus was asked straight out, how does salvation happen? Who goes to heaven? 
How does it work? One time was by a rich young man, and that, the answer to that in that passage is considered specific and personal to that young man. Because the answer there is sell everything you got, give it to the poor, and follow me. And nobody argues that that's the ticket to heaven in general. Nobody. Nobody says you got to sell everything. That's specific and personal to that man is what everybody thinks. The only other time that Jesus was asked how does salvation happen was by a theologian. And what follows is a general theological discussion. And that's why I think that passage is much more relevant to us today because it's a general theological answer to the question. So let's take a, a, a look at this passage from the book of Luke, chapter 10. And today we are going to take a real in-depth look at this passage. I usually don't do this. I usually digest the passage and present it to you for the sake of time. <laughs> but today we are going to go point by point and go into Greek original words and stuff like that because this is such an important topic, don't you think? It's an incredibly important topic, so we're going to take an in-depth look, so please bear with me. It might go a little bit longer than usual, okay? So with that understanding, here it goes. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So here is the, the all-important question. And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will have eternal life. But wanting to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he encountered robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. By chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a despised Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion, and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and, and he put him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed compassion to him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Okay, I'm going to dig in now. First, who asked, who asked the question? A lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test. This is not lawyer you might think of today. 
How many of you are lawyers here today? Yeah, there's several. This is not a lawyer. The law, if you read lawyer or law in the Bible, that refers to the Bible. So this is a theologian who asks the question. And the question is, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That word do in Greek is poiesos. That word poiesos can also mean make or bear fruit or show, show through my life, show in my life. So it's not just a question of mechanical steps that must be taken for salvation. This is a much deeper, larger, more rich question. The question is, what kind of person do I need to become? What kind of fruit needs to come out of my life? What kind of character do I need to develop to be saved? That's a great question, right? It's a rich question. And Jesus responds, what is written in the law? Again, the law is the Bible, remember? So this, this question back is really what is written in the Bible. How do you read the Bible? What do you think the Bible says to the theologian? The theologian should know the Bible, right? And the answer is, you shall agape the Lord your God, know your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and agape your neighbor as yourself. Agape, we talk about it here, unconditional love is the answer, and Jesus agrees. You have answered correctly. And he says, poiesas this, and you will have eternal life. Poiesas. It's a very important word. This will come up again in this passage. Anyway, so agape is key to salvation. That's why we talk about agape a lot in this church. Let me quote you uh, from a Catholic monk who wrote a book called Agape in the New Testament. His name was Cecilius Speak. What a name, right? <laughs> a French monk. Agape is unconditional universal love that shows no distinction. We must love our neighbor, good or bad, fair or unfair, kind or difficult. Neither race, religion, nor nationality make any difference. Primarily, agape means to show respect and kindness. Even to enemies, we owe esteem, fair treatment, and help in time of need. It's a good definition. If this is what comes out of you, if agape is the fruit of your life, that is what leads to salvation, according to Jesus and this Old Testament Bible theologian. We have agreement, which is no you know, common. It, it, this is a rare achievement, right? There's agreement. But unfortunately, the theologian doesn't leave it there. He continues. But wanting to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He wants to put condition on what is required to do. He wants to put condition on unconditional love. Do you see? It's kind of oxymoronic. <laughs> but he wants to put conditions to justify himself. You see, church leaders like me always want to put some condition 
because it justifies our job, right? Justifies our existence. It gives us power. If I can somehow convince you that you can only go to heaven only if you come to me for the wine and the bread and communion, that's the only way. Well, that gives me a lot of power, doesn't it? I got, I got your eternal fate in my hands. You got to do what I say. That's a good, good deal, you know, a good gig. So, very convenient, but a good gig for church leaders. Now, Jesus answers with one of the best-known stories ever, the Good Samaritan. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he encountered robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. The thing about being stripped is that you can no longer tell what kind of person this is. Because our clothing represents so much of what we believe, our culture, the tribe we belong to, especially back then. Even now, you know, like these clothings, it identifies immediately your creed, your religion, your race. But back then, everybody did this. But when we get stripped of all these coverings, we could be anyone. Because we all look the same underneath it all, right? We're just all human beings. And by chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Levite, their function was to be a worship pastor back then. So these are church leaders, priests and worship pastors. And what I find interesting here is that they crossed to the other side of the road, that that's specifically mentioned. Why doesn't Jesus, just in constructing this story, why doesn't Jesus say, oh, well, they just passed him by, overlooked him? Why does he say specifically they crossed to the other side? Don't you find that interesting? Can't you just, like, step over the man? Why do you have to like go to the other side? The theologian would have understood immediately. There are rules in the Bible and the tradition that if you get within a certain distance of a dead person, you become unclean. And that's a big deal back then. If you're unclean, you can't go to church, you can't do your job, you can't be with other people. It's a huge thing. It's becoming like unholy. If the beaten man were a fellow believer, then saving him would have taken precedence. But since you can't tell, they choose to go to the other side of the road to follow the rules of the Bible. So these Bible-obeying church leaders become mean, right? Because of their devotion to the Bible. And that can happen. Today, we see it all around us when the church at large is really so mean <laughs> so many times, but to the LGBTQ community in particular, the suicide rate 
among the queer community in church is three times higher than the suicide rate of the queer community in general, which is so much higher to begin with than the general population because of the society's hostile attitude towards them. So church is literally killing people in the name of following the Bible. That breaks God's heart. Church that follows true Christ out to be at the front advocating for the queer rights, trying to change the society's attitude towards the LGBTQ community to protect these vulnerable and marginalized people who always are getting beat up, like this man in the story, getting beat up. But church, instead of doing that, is leading the charge in discriminating and rejecting and marginalizing LGBTQ community. They're kicking the man when they are down. Is that the right thing to do as followers of Christ? At least from this story, don't ever become mean because of the Bible, would you? Just do me a favor. If you remember anything from anything I have ever said, don't be mean <laughs> ever to anyone. That's not agape. That's the opposite of agape, right? Don't cut people off because of something. You owe them kindness and respect of a human being made in the image of God, no matter what. So says Catholic monk. <laughs> okay? The story continues. But a despised Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. And this despised Samaritan does everything possible to help the man, right? Now, why are the Samaritans despised. Let's see the map of the Israel at the time. So you see Samaria, you see Jerusalem. Samaria was a result of several centuries of imperial policy of Assyria and Babylon when they took over Israel. Because they were an empire, they had this policy not just to Israel, but the, all over the empire, they had this idea that if you leave people with their national identity where they are, they rise up and do rebellion. And that's a headache, right? And so what they did was they would take like more, you know, many or majority of the population from one region and take them to another region. Like they took majority of the Jews from Israel, and they took them to Babylon. You know, that's in the Bible. And they would take, like, people from Egypt and put them in Israel and put Babylonians in Egypt and just mix them all up, right, like a salad. The theory is if they're mixed up, they won't have a national identity, and they won't rebel. Got it? So after several centuries of this, what do you think happened in Israel? That's a complete salad mix, right? They say America is a salad because we are mixed up here, right? It's like that there. You got Egyptian mother, you got Jewish father, 
You got Babylonian grandfather all worshiping their own gods and their own beliefs and their cultures, right? So what do you think would happen to a person growing up in that kind of household? That's just a complete mix of everything, right? So that's Samaria. But then a whole bunch of exiled Jews from Babylon came back to Jerusalem, that area, and rebuilt the Jewish nation. Book of Israel and Book of Nehemiah are books in the Bible that records their desperate struggle to preserve their pure Jewish identity. It was a, na a matter of national survival for them. If they got mixed up, they thought they would lose it. They even made their, their men who were married to anyone outside Jews, they made them get divorced and kicked them out. I mean, what an inhuman thing to do, right? But it was a matter of national survival for them to preserve their pure Jewish identity. You got that? So what do you think happened between the two? Nothing was more threatening to the pure Jewish identity than the mongrel Samaritans. They were the worst. You see, they were so, so threatening to the effort to maintain the pure identity. Right? You know, it's really not that different from today's antagonism between the liberal, secular America that's kind of all mixed up and the Bible Belt that's trying to preserve the WASP Christian America or whatever, right? There's a lot of hostility between the two groups. And the shocking thing about this teaching from Jesus is that the despised Samaritan is lifted up as the example to follow for heaven in contrast to the priest and the worship pastor. That's clear from the story, right? The, the important, all-important question was, what must I us to inherit eternal life? The answer is the one who showed compassion to him. Then Jesus said to the theologian, go and do likewise. That's the final answer from the structure of the story. But also by the Greek used to make a point, very pointed remarks by Jesus. In Greek, it reads, the one who poiesas compassion to him. Not just show compassion, it's poiesas compassion to him. Then Jesus said to the theologian, go and poiesas like the Samaritan. So you see, the corresponding parallel, the question was poiesas, and the answer is poiesas. The answer is, you have to become like the Samaritan. So let's compare these two groups, because Jesus obviously wanted to compare and contrast the Samaritan with the priest and the pastor. What would they be like in today's world? What are the modern equivalent on the despised Samaritan side It'll be like someone who is like a devoted Muslim but has a beloved Catholic aunt. And so he prays with Catholic prayer beads, even though he dreams of going to Mecca. But he believes in chakra points too. And believes in abortion rights, LGBTQ rights, and poyasas agape. Just mixed up guy. <laughs> Very typical of liberal secular America. And on the pastor and the priest side, I, this someone believes in the inerrant sacred Bible. 
believes in Jesus as Lord and Savior, worships God with like all obedience and holiness, takes communion every week, maybe every day, listens to Christian radio, or believes all the right doctrines, can become really mean because of the Bible, Bible over agape. That's right from the story. Today's equivalent would be just like that, exactly like that. Now, church puts so much effort into converting these despised or liberal sinners, secular America, into someone who looks like this, Bible-believing, obedient Christian. This is evangelism. You know what I mean? This is conversion. Christians are supposed to rejoice when people who look like this become people who look like that. And that's why we are supposed to put so much effort in. Do you think that would make Jesus happy from this story? Jesus wants to go the other way, right? He's actually doing evangelism with this theologian who is just like that priest and the pastor. And Jesus is saying, you want to go to heaven? You want to belong to the kingdom of God? You want to follow me? A Christ, you want to be a Christian? Be like this Samaritan. This mixed up guy, but who shows and poiesas agape. That is evangelism. So we have to reimagine evangelism. We have to rethink it all. We have to reimagine what Christian really is. Churches, many, I mean, we, we believe this is a Christian because churches say, that is Christian. But Jesus says, this is Christian. This is who follows Christ. I would much rather trust in straight out answer from Jesus than what churches say out of constructive theories from patching together passages. Wouldn't you? I want to follow Jesus. That's what makes me Christian. Amen? This is Christian, according to Jesus. Wow. So, I mean, if I were to guess, or if you were to guess, who is doing evangelism today? It's not churches. I mean, can you guess? In my mind, I think the people who are doing true evangelism are the therapists. <laughs> Don't you think? Because the therapists, I mean, what are they doing? They are true. Hey, 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 hey. Hey, applaud therapists. Love them. Because what are they doing? They're trying to help people come to peace with themselves, come to peace with people around them, and try to be kind to yourself and people around them. That's agape, right? That's, they are advancing the kingdom of God. They are moving the kingdom of God for, forward by producing kinder and more loving, better human beings. 
You know, whereas churches, what are they producing? We have to reimagine the kingdom of God. It, it's not getting more and more people to chant Jesus is Lord and then turn around and do harmful things like what people do to LGBTQ community or invading Ukraine in the name of fighting Satanism. You know, Russian Orthodox Church, they are just going, eh, kill them all. That's Christian? I don't think so. That's not kingdom of God. Kingdom of God advances when justice advances, when love advances, when equality advances, when rights of all human beings are respected, when that advances, kingdom of God advances. Amen? So we need to reimagine salvation. It doesn't come from taking wine and bread ritualistically. Did you know that the word hocus pocus comes from 17th century British Protestants making fun of communion? Because when the priest chants over the bread and wine, it sounds like hocus pocus. That's magical thinking, right? That's just magic. It's not Harry Potter, people, right? Salvation doesn't come from such mechanical thinking. Like intellectual belief in some facts about Jesus, this theologian would know everything and have all the right doctrines. Salvation goes much deeper. It's a much deeper life-enveloping concept. comes from truly taking into heart that you are beloved unconditionally. That Christ died for you because you are made in the image of God, because God loves you to pieces. It gives you resilience and kindness comes out of you to yourself and to people around you. May our life bear poyasas agape. Amen? Amen. Now, a bit of announcement. Today, after the service, we're going to have a membership class. It's a three-week course, but you can just come, check it out, not come afterward, doesn't matter. The reason I mention it is because we are going to follow up on why is agape so important. And I may have provoked some questions in you, like, well, if all this is true, why is Jesus special? Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? What makes that so special? Well, we're going to go into those topics. So a bit of a follow-up there. So if you haven't taken membership class, uh, please, come on up. Let's discuss. If you haven't taken membership class in the last two years, in fact, there will be lots of new material that we can get into. So you're welcome to come and check it out, ask questions. You can leave in the middle if you want, if you don't like it. There's no pressure. It's all freedom here. You're not going to offend anybody. It's all fine. So check it out. See if it'll help your life. So I'm going to wrap up here. I've gone a little long today, but this was such an important topic. Wrapping up, let's recover the gospel. Let's recover the word evangelism even. Let's recover Christianity as Jesus would have us do, not just follow theories. Amen? And eternal life, life in all its fullness will come to you. In Jesus' name. Let me pray for us. God, we do pray that today that our lives would bear fruit of agape. 
Now, Holy Spirit, you would pour out agape into our hearts, and that we would become kinder to ourselves and to those around us. That we would experience the kingdom of God in our hearts and in our lives. In Jesus' name, Amen.